Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine. I am one of your hosts, Dave Roos. I'm here with Helen Bond, professor of Christian origins at the University of Edinburgh. Helen, we spend a lot of time traveling back to the to the first century. That's it's one of our our favorite spots. We're there and back all the time. All the time. <laughs> we we have a frequent uh, time traveler punch card that every ten trips we get a free. <laughs> 11th trip. But um, I think after our conversation with, with Jody, I don't know if I want to go back. I mean, I'm amazed we've survived, right? Ever, ever again. I know exactly. Just think of the amount of vaccines that you need oh. to get to the first century. I mean, it's just incredible. I don't think I don't think you or I would survive more than an hour, actually. No, no. I would take one bite of food, one sip of water. I would look in the wrong direction and I would be dead. It's, yeah. it's, it's a nasty world in the first century, wasn't it? And that's before you've even started to think about the, the lice or mm. the everything else. I mean, just going to the loo, the mm -hmm. restroom, as you would say, I mean, it's a completely different kind of experience. Yeah, just, just, oh, all, all of that. I mean, all of these things that you just don't really think about, no. you know, you don't think about what was... You know, you read the sort of the biblical text, you're thinking about all of these religious high sort of ideas. Mm. But when you think about, you know, what were what were conditions actually like, it actually blows you away when you think just how difficult things life just just mm -hmm. living. I mean, no wonder infant mortality was so high. You know, I mean, you were you were doing well if you survived being <laughs> being a baby. You know, you got all plenty of bacteria in mm. you, I suppose. But so yeah, let's stay in our armchairs. For yeah, a bit. yeah. So I'm going to stay here for a while, <laughs> but yeah, we'll, we'll, we're going to get to our our, our conversation uh, here in a second with with Jody Magnus. But I we wanted to remind our listeners. Uh, first of all, congratulations to those who have joined the Time mm. Travelers Club. You are in this exclusive, exclusive organization, <laughs> and uh, you should be proud. And we are very, very grateful. Exclusive. Yeah, super exclusive. <laughs> we're, we're we're very grateful uh, for your support for the show, and we encourage more listeners to to check out the link in the description for the Time Travelers Club. Again, this is an opportunity to engage a little more with the show. We'll, you can ask questions directly to our guests on the air, and and we we have received a question that that we'll be we'll be reading on the air. Um, and so yeah, and, and it's a chance to. To you know, throw us a couple dollars and and help support what we're doing here, which which we appreciate. And don't forget to go over and have a look at Bible Odyssey in association with the Society of Biblical Literature over on their website. They've got loads and loads of really interesting articles, short articles too, and nice and clear about everything to do with the Bible from ancient times right through to to the second century. So you'll find lots of stuff you like there. But now let's get to our conversation with Jody Magnus. Helen, Jody Magnus is like she's one of the biggest names in biblical archaeology, right? Oh, she's the name. The, the name. name. Wow. Okay. So we're we were very excited, very honored to have Jody hang out with us. Jody, I'm gonna give her her official title, which is long. She is the Keenan <laughs> Distinguished Professor for Teaching Excellence in Early Judaism at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Has a mouthful, but it is it shows <laughs> shows how impressive she is. And she uh, yeah. she wrote a book a couple years ago with a great title. It's called Stone and Dung, Oil and Spit. 
Jewish daily life in the time of Jesus. So if that doesn't give you an idea of what we're going to be talking about, <laughs> I don't know what will. But uh, yeah, let's let's get to our conversation with the amazing Jody Magnus. Well, hello, Jody Magnus, and welcome to Biblical Time Machine. Hello, thank you for having me. Speaking of time machines, we are we are traveling back in a, a couple of a decade or so. So Jody is very kind to speak with us about a topic that you know she 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 wrote a book about about ten years ago, and it is you know we're talking about daily life, sort of Jewish daily life in the time of Jesus or the first century, and her book called Stone and Dung. Oil and spit is is like the best title I've ever heard for a book, and it's is so like earthy and evocative, and and a little disgusting because we have spit and we have dung in there. So I I have to ask you, Jody, like why? You know, a great title first of all, and why did you kind of pick those words to to set the scene? I did not. <laughs> oh, dang it! It was it was the publisher. I had a much oh, good more boring title. I'm I'm uh, really <laughs> I'm really bad with coming up with flashy titles. Um, and so my title was "Aspects of Jewish Daily Life in Late Second Temple Period Palestine" mm, or something like that. Not as and sexy, they, yeah, yeah yeah. And they come back yeah. one day and they're like, "We you changed the title, the Stone and Dung Oil and Spit." And I was like, "Oh no!" And I've sort of been stuck with it ever since. Oh no! Um, but they were right; it does uh, get attention. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, why? Uh, I mean, did you have you come around, or do you, it, what? Do those words are are they representative of? of something about first century life? I mean, <laughs> well, make I sense? mean, yeah, the idea is to look at, you know, material aspects of, of mm. Jewish life in that period in the time of Jesus, and, and particularly to try and pull together both the archaeological evidence and the literary evidence. So, you know, whether it's the biblical evidence or, you know, um, contemporary ancient sources like Josephus or whatever, to kind of pull it all together and understand what daily life was like for people at that time. Okay. And that's, I think that's important you know, for the listeners to kind of understand the sources that you're working with. So it's it's not only archaeology, because, you know, God bless archaeology, but it, it can't give us everything. And then uh, we have, you know, you have the biblical sources, but also our friend Josephus, who we've talked about a ton. Um, many times. Many times. And then, and I know you've done a lot of work with, you know, both archaeology and sort of literature of the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Isn't that another yeah. big source? Yes, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Yeah. And there's a lot of that in my book. Mm -hmm. So can we start with talking about food then? Yes. Because um, I'm always thinking about food, I have to say, but <laughs> food <laughs> food plays a major part in, in, in the New Testament, obviously, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus yeah. is always having meals or he's, yeah. uh, the miracles are about making food mm -hmm. for people. So, I mean, and you sort of expect food to be at the, the, the heart of any society, really, don't you? Mm -hmm. So, so, so what, was, what, what was eating and sort of dining customs like in, in the first century? And, and do Jews differ particularly from Gentiles? Is it just about what they're eating or are there sort of actual sort of different customs? Um, well, first of all, with regard to what they're eating, um, obviously mm. Jews, at least those who are observing biblical law, would not eat certain things that are prohibited by biblical law. So obviously mm. no pork, for example, right? Mm. Um, shellfish is off the table, but frankly, I don't think there were a lot of oysters in Palestine in Jesus' <laughs> time, but you know, whatever. 
Um, and so, you know, any of the any of the prohibited species, right? So no rabbits, you wouldn't eat dog, you wouldn't eat a horse. Um, you know, anyway, so there, you know, Jews would have would most Jews, I think it's fair to say, even if they weren't, you know, what we would consider today to be super observant, mm. probably would have avoided the, you know, the major kinds of food that are prohibited by biblical biblical law. Um, but otherwise, actually, I think that Overall, they were living in a larger context where their their diet and their dining habits were similar to everybody else's. And this is one of the problems that I have with the way we as modern scholars approach the study of ancient Judaism, which is that we tend to look at Jews and Judaism as if they're something different and peculiar. Mm, um, yeah, whereas, yeah. in fact, the Jews were far more similar to everyone around them than they were different. And so we tend to focus on those differences. But in fact, really, aside from, you know, these very specific food prohibitions or taboos, um, the way that they prepared their food and, you know, they they dined um, was and the diet was pretty much the same. Um, so, you know, it also what what you ate depended like today depended on on your socioeconomic level. Right. So if you were wealthy, you had obviously a richer and more diverse diet than people who were poor and poor people or what we would consider to be poor people were the overwhelming majority of society. I mean, let's say mm. something like at least 80% of the population, you know, um, was at that kind of lower level, meaning not destitute, but, but, but living just above subsistence level. So, so for the majority of the population, which would be them, their diet was, was very non-diverse, let's say, um, had very little meat. Um, a lot of people, the only time they ate meat is if they participated in a sacrifice, right? So they would eat mm. sacrificial meat as part of that. Um, but otherwise, on a daily basis, you know, the basic bread, the basic food in this part of the world is bread um, that you dip into something or you eat with something, right? And so, uh, so bread, you know, with olive oil and maybe some sort of like a hummus type of a paste or something like that, that would be a real staple item. Um, in fact, uh, the in Greece, it was very much the same. You had bread and fish, opson, which mm -hmm. is the bread and the fish, and pson, the, the fish. So it's that's this, this kind of very basic um, sort of Mediterranean, Near Eastern uh, diet. And then above that, you know, when you could get fresh vegetables, or even if they were wild, but, you know, you could try and cook them in stews. And by the way, so if you were, if you were actually cooking something, um, again, for the you know, we're talking about food that, that everybody would have eaten. Um, it was a lot of boiled stews. Um, so you would, put, you know, it's like the stone soup kind of a thing. So you would take a cooking pot and put, you know, some water or liquid in it and then throw stuff into it and boil it to death. And, um, and, and that was because uh, for two reasons, number one, that made it go farther. So whatever you had go went, went farther that way, but also the boiling reduced everything to a mush. And you have to realize that people's teeth <laughs> were not mm. great at that uh, time. And a lot of people lost uh. their teeth, you know, at some point or another, or had bad teeth. And so they weren't able to chew stuff. So, um, so the boiling also reduced everything to mush. So you have to think of like a pot of like lentils with maybe some, you know, veg vegetable or something thrown in or whatever. Um, and uh, if you're lucky, maybe, you know, you're near the Sea of Galilee, you can get a fish and stick mm. that in or whatever. So, you know, that's, that's really kind of the basic diet for um, the majority of the population. And then, you know, above that, uh, if you were more affluent, and you could afford other kinds of food, you could you could supplement with fish, maybe even with meat. 
Um, there's a very interesting thing about eggs that I'm working on because I think eggs mm. <laughs> really, really become common in Galilee in the time of Jesus and then remain oh. so for several centuries after, which means they're raising lots of chickens. And we actually mm-hmm. see this because there's a particular type of pottery, which is a, a, a pan, a shallow pan to cook like a quiche or a frittata that becomes hmm. very common in Galilee around the time of Jesus. And it's actually a a, a type of, of preparation that was very popular among the Romans. And, and so yeah. it's apparently adapted by the Jews. It's a, it's a really useful thing. You can, you beat up some eggs and then you chop up some, anything, fish, fruit, vegetables, whatever you, you throw it into the pan, you beat up egg, you, you know, put, mix it up with the egg in the pan and then you cook it. You can either bake it or cook it over a fire. Right. So you basically get a quiche or a frittata, depending on whether you're baking it <laughs> or frying it. And that seems to become very popular, um, really, just about in the time of Jesus. I, I don't know. Jesus might have eaten quiches, but um, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> that's the title. That's the title of the book. Yeah, Jesus yeah. might have eaten quiches. So, okay. Well, it's it's interesting because the pans appear uh, in in Galilee just around. It's a little bit tight, so it, just around the time he dies, I don't know. So he might. I mean, anyway, but it's it's so uh, maybe Paul. Yeah, exactly. So it. it Probably was a big part of of the diet there, the local diet. Um, eggs in different prepared in different ways. But but no tomatoes, is that right? Oh, no, no tomatoes no, come no, in no. later. Tomatoes, so our, none of that. our idea no of rice. kind of no no rice. yeah the Mediterranean diet as we understand it wasn't bread. there. No, it's you yeah, know, bread is yeah. that bread is the staple, right? And and by the way, the bread would have been obviously very coarse for our taste, right? It would have been whole grain and. Um, and it it would not you wouldn't necessarily eat it fresh either. I mean, it it could be stale. Mm. You could be stale bread. I mean, it, well, you, can, you can throw it in that stew you exactly, know, or you can <laughs> or you mush it up. You mush it up in the you know olive oil paste and stuff yeah. that you know. Yeah, no, exactly. It's um, it it's kind of gross actually, and and, then, <laughs> and for us anyway. And then the same. I I I actually always like to say that if we could. So we'll probably get into this later, but. You know, I like to say that if we could be retrojected back 2000 years in time, first of all, we would be bowled over by the odorama because mm. you know, people didn't <laughs> bathe or wash frequently because there, there weren't, I mean, there just weren't, I mean, there weren't places you couldn't do it. There was very limited water. Um, and, and a lot of people only had one change of clothes. I mean, there's actually something in the Talmud about, you know, if you have a second change of clothes, you should change it oh, on wow. the Sabbath, you know. So <laughs> a lot of people only had one garment. Um, and and so, you know, the, the smell, right, would have been overwhelming for us, I think. Um, and Ooh. and then, the, so the first thing, we'd be bowled over by Odoram. And the second thing is we'd all be dead within a week because, you know, <laughs> no, we would. We, we would, we, we have no immunity to those diseases because we wow. didn't grow up in that environment. So if you think about like, like water, right? So a lot of the water is coming from pools or cisterns where they store water, you know, over the course of the year. And there's in, in that part of the world, there's a dry season and a wet season. And so you have this very long dry season when there's no rain. And your water source is, you know, water that's been sitting around in cisterns or pools all year. If you're lucky, you know, you have access to it. Um, and if, you know, maybe mixing it up with some uh, some wine because they mixed wine with water in antiquity and, and the wine, there was no way to stop the process of fermentation. So it would turn into vinegar. And that was mixed mm. with water, kind of like a lemonade thing. Um, but yeah, think about, you know, about how 
if we were, if we had to go back in time, <laughs> this is one of the things that I have with these TV shows that show people being like transported <laughs> back in time. Like I kind of like Outlander, but you know, but, <laughs> like, but it's kind of like so unrealistic because if, he, <laughs> if she really was transported back, even let's say to the later middle ages or whatever, 15th, 16th, 17th century, she'd still be dead within a week. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So with those, Well, the smell, I, 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 the we, smell, we did laugh. Like we would watch, we watched them outlander too. And, and they don't, you know, they're always making out and doing stuff. And like, the breath on that oh, guy God, would have knocked yeah. her over. Uh-huh. And the B.O., like, yep. he's just getting up. Come on. Yeah, That's exactly. Mm. That's right. So, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> what about, well, can I, well, whilst yeah. we're on this topic, can I, can I just ask about lice? I mean, would everybody, oh, yeah. am, am I right in thinking everybody would have just had body lice and I hair think, lice? Because if, if yeah. you've only got one change of clothes, right. I mean, well, how, and, how would you get rid yeah. of it? And, and in fact, um, there have been analyses of ancient combs that have been found in the area along the Dead oh, Sea. yeah. Um, and not only actually along the Dead Sea, from different periods where they have identified lice eggs in the, the combs, because that's how you got rid of lice, right? You yeah, have yeah. these combs that have very thin prongs or whatever, and you mm-hmm. when you comb your hair, um, you pick out the eggs. So, and, and so, yes, absolutely. There would have been lice and all sorts of other stuff. There was, um, in, in Yiga el-Yadin's excavations on top of Masada, um, they found remains of uh, of, of fruit, it was preserved because it was so dry. The atmosphere was so dry. Like, so they found dried, you know, figs and stuff like that. And, and they were infested with all sorts of bugs, right? Because, you know, and, and vermin, like, like grubs and stuff. I mean, absolutely infested, right? So yeah, yeah, no, we'd be, we'd be completely, we'd be dead and we'd be, we'd be grossed out first and then we would be dead. But um, yeah. So so this time machine is not sounding like it. I know, but we do have, I mean, you know, we have a time machine, so now we have to pack like a hazmat suit or at least we just go for a short time and then we come back. This is why, you know, I I mean, the, the the problem with these, you know, TV shows that kind of show the ancient world they're they're so highly sanitized yeah they don't convey the you know and so this is one of the reasons this is completely off topic but this is one of the reasons why i like (laughs) to go to india so much um where i have liked to go to india um is because because for me people say oh isn't it dirty and isn't it you know uh, impoverished And, and it is by our standards, but actually that's kind of what the ancient world was like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I mean, you know, um, so going to some of these villages, right. And you see how people live there and, and like, for example, getting onto the dung, right. If you've ever been to Rajasthan, which I love, um, they, you know, the cows walk the streets, right. Um, mm. And, and they poop on the streets and people collect the poop in these big um, bowls, big open bowls. And then they form them into patties and dry them and they use them as fuel, which we know was oh, done yeah. in the biblical world, uh, yeah. for example. So, I mean, there's all these, you know, things that you see that are like, oh yeah, that's what they did, you know, back They've then. Been right? doing that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, okay. You mentioned dung. We're going to, we have, let's just jump to it. Let's get, <laughs> let's go to toilets. Now I do want to, I do want to uh, call out a listener. So we have a loyal listener <laughs> named Caroline Lawrence and she sent a specific email about this and she even mentioned your name. She's like, Oh, Jody Magnus can talk about this. So let's talk <laughs> toilets in the ancient world uh-huh. as an, as an archeologist, like have we dug up things that like, this is clearly a toilet or was there nothing even approaching a permanent toilet like right. that? Like what, what do we know? Right. Right. Yeah. No, everybody loves to hear about toilets. You know, I have to Come tell on. you my, my grandfather, 
owned a plumbing supply store in Philadelphia. And uh, when I started to do research on toilets, my dad was like, I knew she would go into the family business. You know? <laughs> but um, anyway, um, so I mean, I, so the, with regard to ancient toilets, it's kind of like today in the sense that, that the way that you relieved yourself varied depending on where you were and what kind of facilities you had access to or not, right? So the most basic thing is if you had no access at all to any toilet facilities and you were out and about, you would just go anywhere. I mean, I actually found examples of, of shops at Pompeii where the shopkeepers wrote on the outside of the shop, don't go here. Uh, oh, and, no public bathroom. They have had well, that forever. Wow. Yeah, I mean, oh, no. there are, well, and even if there were, not everybody had access. That's no, I'm saying like right? when they put those signs oh. up, like, you know, don't come in here and go to the bathroom. <laughs> right. kind of thing, you know. um, and and, and there, there's also Roman legislation, which, which tries to prohibit people from, um, and pretty much we're talking now about defecation. We're not talking about urination. Um, so mm. anyway, uh, that, that, tries to prevent, you know, defecation in, in places that are public, like, um, like around tombs or public monuments or stuff like that. So it's clear that, you know, people really did kind of go anywhere when, when they had to go and there wasn't another, um, alternative, um, in, if you were in a house, a private house and, and your house was not equipped with a toilet facility, an outhouse or whatever, then what you would do is use a chamber pot or the analogy of a chamber pot. So like the bottom part of a jar or something like that. And then you would empty the contents into the street. Just chuck um, it out. And okay. yes. And if you've ever been to Pompeii, for example, you would, you might've noticed that the, the streets have very high curbs for the sidewalks on either mm. side. Oh, yeah. oh, you know why? Yeah, that's why. <laughs> and, and by the way, that's a big improvement over not having high curbs with sidewalks, sure. isn't it? Oh yeah, because that's the alternative, right? So Pompeii is an advanced city because cities that didn't have that, you know, you're walking through the streets, right? And so there are mm. alleys and and so, right? Um, and by the way, in, in places like Pompeii, you'll notice that occasionally there are these fountains along the streets and the overflow from the fountains would wash the waste into mm. the main sewers. So individual toilet facilities in places like Pompeii weren't actually hooked up to sewers, but the um, per se, but uh, like mm. like outhouses, they wouldn't be hooked up. But the waste in the streets was washed away into the sewage system. So that's again why those those cities were relatively advanced. Now, um, if you if you did have a toilet facility in a private house, and we see this in a lot of the houses in Pompeii, for example. Uh, what it basically consisted of was a cesspit dug into the floor that would have a stone or a wooden seat over it. And this is a kind of a toilet facility that uh, is very common all, going all the way back to the Bronze Age and the Iron Age in the in the Near East, for example. There are little variations, but but again, you see it also in these houses at Pompeii. And very interesting at Pompeii, the room with the toilet, which is always a cubicle, is next to the kitchen because the toilet was used also for the disposal of kitchen waste. Uh, now, mm. so yeah, again, I'm talking about the odorama, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> and so what would happen is, so those individual cesspits were not connected to uh, to a sewer system. And that meant that they had to be emptied out occasionally. Mm. And what they would do is they would call a manure merchant to come and he would empty the contents of the 
uh, of the cesspit and sell it to be used as agricultural fertilizer in the fields, which is what's called night soil, which is again why I say we'd all be dead with it if oh we were consuming that food. Um, now, the, the Romans did develop a very sophisticated toilet technology that I think pre pretty much was unparalleled until we get to the 20th century, mm. which are what are called Roman luxury latrines. And <laughs> usually this is a kind of uh, toilet facility that's attached to a bathhouse. And in the Roman world, when you have a bathhouse, you would have uh, an aqueduct bring in a constant stream of fresh water that would circulate through the different rooms of the bathhouse. And then at the end, it would go into the toilet room and there you would have a room where around the sides of the room, there would be a channel underground that had the water flowing through it. And above the channel, that is at the floor level, you would have a row of seats going around the sides of the room. You could have up to 60 seats altogether. Um, wow. And the, the waste would then, would then go into the channel below and the water would carry the waste oh, away. Yeah. Right. Um, so this is actually pretty sophisticated, but, but to us, they look really weird. Roman luxury latrines look really weird because um, there's no toilet privacy, right? People. Yeah. It's a very social experience. It's a very <laughs> social experience. And in fact, I don't know if you remember that, um, uh, that very long ago, that TV show that they did. I Claudius. Oh, you know, yeah. You remember yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. I there, there are a couple of scenes where he's mm. literally sitting on the toilet talking to the camera. Right. Mm. And and so we know uh, there there I, there there are all sorts of little vignettes from from uh, different Roman writers that that, you know, refer to people <laughs> socializing and talking to each other in the toilet. <laughs> so so there was no concept of toilet privacy. Right. Um, there was also no. Oh, and by the way. So what did they do? To, you know, when you're in one of these luxury latrines, um, at the base of the seats, there's always a, a sort of a small channel that runs along the base. And there's a little bit of a debate about what that channel was used for. It's not mutually exclusive. One is that it was for spills. Um, and the other is that um, the Romans used a sponge on a stick to wipe themselves. So you would, I was going to ask about yeah, that. You would right. Oh, sponge on a stick. That when you sat down at your seat, there'd be a sponge on a stick and it would be down in the channel. And then when you needed to wipe yourself and then you were, when you were done, you would put it back. Ooh. Yeah. Right. Um, oh, a collective sponge yeah. on a stick. A collective wow. sponge on a stick. We're yeah. just sharing yeah, yeah. everything. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really glad I asked about toilets. <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm just going to throw up real quick. Um, but I mean, and any of that, like, do does any of that fancy toilet technology show up in ancient, you know, Roman yeah, Judea or anything like that? That's or? a good question. Um, not in the time of Jesus. It's yeah. it's going to be after that. Mm. So, like in the following century, you begin to get that sort of stuff. But even in in Rome, it doesn't become real common. Um, I mean, it starts sort of in the late, I think, late first century BC or something. But it it you know really takes off when we're talking about third, fourth, fifth centuries. Um, but even then, you know, that doesn't mean that everybody had access to it. But if you think about the sure. big, um, the big projects in Rome where, you know, they build these huge, uh, city baths, right? The baths of Caracalla or the baths of Diocletian or the baths of Titus, right? So those kind of big public facilities would have had a toilet, uh, attached to them, right? Mm -hmm. So for public use. But if you were, if you were, you know, among the, the, the wealthiest, um, you could afford your own little private bathhouse, and those would have a little toilet as part of them as well. 
And there's stuff from Qumran, isn't there, about how you, you go outside the uh, settlement with your little yeah, your little axe or whatever yeah. it is, your trowel, and you dig your... Yeah. Is, I mean, would that be what most people no. were, were doing, <laughs> do you think? Or was that, <laughs> was that, was that an unusual um, thing there? Yeah, no, the, the Qumran sect differed from other Jews in their, mm. and from pretty much everybody else, actually, in their toilet habits in a couple of ways. Um, and so one <laughs> is that... Um, is that they apparently considered um, defecation to be a ritually polluting activity, an excrement to be ritually impure, right? So to cause ritual impurity, not physical hygiene impurity, but ritual impurity. Um, and that's different from most of the other Jews at the time. Um, and so, for example, for this reason, uh, they um, apparently immerse themselves in a ritual bath after, they, after defecation. Um, the other thing is that uh, they... Um, they prohibited uh, uh, defecation on the Sabbath, so you were you were not allowed to go <laughs> wow. on the Sabbath. Okay. Uh, now, now, yeah, and and this is this is one of the things that you see what you mentioned in the Temple Scroll, which is a you know which is one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, not necessarily a sectarian composition, but found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, which mandates that in this in a future ideal city of Jerusalem, when they're in charge, the toilets will be uh, 3,000 cubits outside the city. And that, that places the, the toilets outside the Sabbath limits, which means that's farther than you're allowed to walk on the Sabbath. So you couldn't reach the toilets on the Sabbath. Uh, and, and, and this, this apparently has to do with their idea about, um, not, not polluting the Sabbath. The Sabbath day is supposed to be a day when you're, when you keep absolutely ritually pure, you imitate the angels who you're in communion with on the Sabbath. Um, and so you're supposed to refrain from defecation. Now, then you're probably wondering, well, but wait, how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? That's exactly um, what, what I'm wondering. Do do? So, so I, I actually think, so, so, you know, Jewish law in general distinguishes between, and especially when you get to the rabbis, you see this a lot. They distinguish between, um, it, between making a voluntary versus an involuntary uh, transgression of the law, right? And so, so obviously penalties are going to be much steeper when it's a voluntary infraction. But if you really have to go and it's the <laughs> Sabbath and you, maybe you have some sort of a stomach virus or something, whatever. <laughs> because you um, live in that time. You have to go, right, of course, <laughs> right? You can only imagine. And so, so um, apparently there was no penalty for not go for if you had to go on the Sabbath, right? But it was like an ideal. So ideally, you would try not to go. But if you if you ended up having to go, it what you were not, you know, you weren't punished for that. I, did, right? I just see I see the person running for the outhouse, going involuntary, <laughs> involuntary, <laughs> scrambling. I'm off the hook. Yeah. All right. Well, this 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 brings up a question that I had because I know that you've worked on lots of excavations in in Qumran and Masada where they find. All of these ritual baths, these these mikvaot, um, were these being used? Like, how were these being used? Like, were they part of daily life, and were they part of kind of cleaning up with all this nasty stuff around? Yeah. Okay. So, if you like at Qumran, for example, which is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, right, where the where the community there lived, which I think are Essenes, but anyway, um, 
So there are these these pools, which were used as ritual baths that have steps going down into them. So you could immerse yourself to purify yourself ritually. Those pools were filled with water only maybe once or twice a year because there's hardly any rain in the area. And that water then in those pools was used over the course of the year by the people living at Qumran for all purposes. It was it was drinking water. It was water to immerse oh, no. yourself in. It was to oh. wander your clothes in. It was it was used for everything. And over the course of the year, again and again, people repeatedly immersing themselves in it. So, and there's nothing in Jewish law, by the way, which prohibits using water that gets dirty in that way uh, for the purposes of ritual purification, um, as long as you have hmm. the minimum amount of water necessary for immersion. Um, then it doesn't matter how dirty, you know, or discolored the water gets. Mm. It has just has to be what's called living water. Living water means mm. it has to come from a from a natural source. So it can be rainwater that's flowed into the pool, or it can be water that comes from a spring, or it can be a river, or whatever. You think about the Jordan River, right? Um, so, so though, but but as long as it fulfills that criterion, and there's you have the minimum necessary amount, it doesn't matter if the water's been sta- standing around all year and it's dirty. It looks dirty. That's it's still pure. It still purifies. And and by the way, going back to India, this is exactly what you see also if you go to Varanasi, right? Banaras, the great Hindu uh, um, yeah. uh, pilgrimage center on the banks of the Ganges River, where you have literally mil- millions of Hindus immersing in water that is so sludgy and thick you can practically cut it with a knife and they're 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 putting all of the cremated remains pushing all the cremated remains into the river at that spot and and right next to that you see you know again you know huge numbers of these these hindus immersing themselves and when you ask them about it and you say but the water is dirty they say no it's pure and Mm. by biblical according to biblical law that water actually is pure because it's it's living water. So it's the very same principle. And then you ask, well, wait a minute, but how is it that they didn't all die? And it's the same thing today in India, right? You go and you say, how is it that some of them are brushing their teeth in that water? I mean, no, seriously. And and so you ask, well, how is it that they don't die? And, you know, if you grow up in that kind of environment and you survive to adulthood, you've you've acquired immunity to a lot of those diseases. But on the other hand, some of them do get sick. And some of them do die. And that's the way that it was in the time of Jesus, right? So, um, yeah. So it's not about, because I, I guess I was thinking that it became this ritual practice because things were so nasty and people no. were like, they were trying to build it into the system that no. maybe wash yourself off every once no. in a while, but that didn't serve that no. function. No, no, wow. not. It's the, the concept of ritual purity is distinct from physical mm. hygiene and cleanliness. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's important to know. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean we've talked about how how difficult life could be then and and I mean there were many ways that you know you could get some kind of nasty bug or be taken away so I mean death would be a a normal part of daily life wouldn't it so um I mean can you talk us through sort of the the, the purity laws and customs and, and and what happened when a person yeah. died um and 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 by the way not just death but again if you think about it with all the diseases and, 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 you know, (laughs) lack of medical care, um, that there would have been large numbers of people who had various afflictions, right? This Mm. is Jesus's target audience, right? (laughs) I mean, no, seriously, large numbers of, of people who, you know, had some kind of a disability or chronic, Mm. uh, sickness or disease or whatever. And, 
you know, I mean, even just thinking about it now, like, like, I can't see without my contacts, you know, I yeah, mean, yeah. just like the simplest things, but, but you think about it today and, and, and all the medications that we take and all, you know, going to the doctor and none of that is available. So think about what a population would look like um, under those kind of circumstances. And there you have it. Right. Um, but anyway, uh, so so yeah, so Although, yeah. sorry, wait, not not to interject, but yeah. I just had a I just had a flash. We we talk about that story of of Mary Magdalene in the tomb and she doesn't recognize Jesus. She probably just yeah. had bad eyesight. <laughs> she, she needed contact. She might have had bad People eyesight. were walking around yeah. half blind. No, she exactly. could she Right. I mean, we do, okay, sorry, you do I wonder you about that, but you I'm do write a whole book about that. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I, I read an, I read an article about that a while ago, oh, you, about, oh, you know, people, it. people, um, it was a classicist writing about this and just people, how people's eyesight. And I mean, I have very poor eyesight too. I would be, I would really struggle to get around without yeah. contacts. Yeah, and, no, and you exactly. do wonder how people manage. Yeah. Yeah. It, no, that's exactly right. So, and I mean, that's just the most basic thing, but I mean, there were, of course, large numbers of people who were afflicted with with much worse uh, sure. disabilities mm, yeah, than yeah. you know poor eyesight, right? If you think about yeah. it. So, anyway, um, but uh, so you know, again, like everything else, the the manner of of how your body was treated after you died depended on your socioeconomic status, uh, and so um, if you were if you were truly unfortunate and you had nobody to care for your body um, when you died. Your remains were just randomly disposed of. And this is true all around the ancient world. So you, you, there, there are documents that refer to, you know, people's corpses being thrown into empty cisterns or, you know, just randomly disposed of in pits or, or whatever. Um, there's also, uh, there are also references to um, animals scavenging human corpses. For example, there's a great passage in Suetonius's Life of Vespasian where he describes Vespasian the emperor sitting at his breakfast table and a dog trots in with a human arm in its mouth. Um, <laughs> because, you know, yeah, exactly. So you have, you know, so, so first of all, you didn't, there were people who didn't have, were, whose remains were not properly disposed mm. of. And that's, by the way, why in the Roman Empire, people began to form burial societies. You would join a burial society to ensure that when you died, your body was properly disposed of, mm. right? Mm -hmm. um, now, if you, if you were, you know, again, among the large majority who were not affluent, but you did have, you know, somebody to take care of your remains, the method of, of disposal, again, varied, but in, in, uh, in the area of Judea, at least, I think that, that the most common way was to dig a trench in the ground, very similar to the way that we, we bury our dead today. You dig a trench in the ground, basically six feet deep, and you put the body, you, you wrap the body in a shroud, maybe put it in a wooden coffin, and you lay it at the base of the trench, and you fill it back in with dirt and you, you put a headstone to mark the spot. Um, so that was, that was, you know, if you were fortunate enough to have somebody to take care of your remains. Um, if you were more affluent, and this is mainly in the area of Jerusalem, but not only, then uh, your family might own what we would call today maybe a mausoleum, meaning a rock cut tomb. So it would be like a cave, but handmade, you know, cut by hand. Um, and in it, you would have spaces for the bodies that are called loculi, which are these niches that are cut back into the wall. Each one accommodates a body. And so as members of the family died over time, the bodies were placed in a niche and it was sealed off with a stone slab. And then as the, as the spaces became filled over time, 
the earlier remains would be moved out of the niche. And uh, eventually some of them were, this becomes a custom at some point, um, they begin to collect the bones and put them into little stone boxes that are called ossuaries, right? So if we want to imagine the the gospel accounts of how Jesus was buried, mm. he's laid in, his body is laid in the tomb of a wealthy, prominent follower, right? Joseph of Arimathea, mm. and in a rock cut tomb of that type, right? So, um, so, and that's apparently because, uh, because when Jesus expired on the cross, he was, he was, he had been abandoned by everybody. There was nobody there. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, and, and there's all, there's a whole thing about it. I think that there's a, that Joseph of Arimathea was concerned with making sure that Jesus, Jesus's body was, was placed in a tomb, was given a proper burial before the beginning of the Sabbath, which was just about to start. And so I think that's why, what motivates him to take Jesus's body and put it in his own family's tomb. Cause these were family mausolea. They weren't like communal, right? Each family had one, just like today, right? Your family might have a mausoleum and it's your family's. It's not like a communal mausoleum. So those are the ba- basically um, the different kinds of, of ways that people's remains were disposed of. And were women particularly associated with, with burials? You sort of imagine women's with sort of laments and, and preparing the body and anointing it and things like that. Is this... Um, is this a, a correct idea? Or I, is this you know, just... I don't know that women had a greater role in, in the preparation. It's possible that they, they did. But again, how how much the body was treated depended on, um, you know, the the circumstances. So um, so in the case, and actually, if you look at the gospel accounts describing Jesus's burial, as you go from Mark, which is thought to be the earliest of the gospels, and then by the time you get to John, the it, the rites become described as more and more elaborate. So by the time, yeah, you know, you yeah. get to John, he's like being he's the, like the king. Being, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so, um, so it depended on, you know, exactly who was, who was taking care. I'm not sure that women necessarily had a greater role. And the, one of the things to remember about, um, about burials is that they were, they were associated with ritual impurity big time. I mean, that's the worst. Mm-hmm. There are different grades or different, uh, categories of ritual impurity and corpse impurity coming into contact with mm. corpse is the worst kind of impurity at all of all and in fact it's such a bad kind of impurity that uh that high priests were prohibited from participating in uh funerals um the funeral rites for um for everyone except for their their most immediate relatives mm. um so that they wouldn't become ritually pure and then to purify yourself if you if you did become ritually impure you would undergo a process that involved being sprinkled with the ashes of an unblemished red heifer uh, and immersing yourself then repeatedly. And, and finally, after a week, you would be ritually pure again. And this is, by the way, why technically, uh, since at least the third, fourth centuries AD, when the last ashes of an unblemished red heifer ran out, nobody's yeah. been ritually pure uh, in Judaism, really, uh, basically, because there's no way to, yeah. you know, to do that, at least from corpse impurity. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, wow. and, and how, how, how do we know that, that red impure, that <laughs> red, red heifers or sorry, pure, pure red heifers ran out? I mean, yeah, well, seems... that, no, because they had to be sacrificed. <laughs> it's, they had to be, once the temple was destroyed in 70, oh, I see. there's no way right, to offer, okay. right? So okay. Oh, right. Okay. TV program recently, was it called, <laughs> was it Dig? I'm not sure if it was that one where they're, 
it was focused on the red heifer thing, the unblemished red heifer. So a lot of times these groups who want to like rebuild the third temple or whatever, one of the things oh. that they're concerned with is having, you know, an mm. unblemished red heifer because you, you have to purify yourself first. Let's just get some good antibacterial right. soap in there. <laughs> Come on, guys. I think we've come a long way. Well, that's that's the takeaway. The takeaway from this conversation is, man, am I happy to be living now uh-huh. and not and back in the first century. Especially, oh. by the way, if you're a woman, you're happy well, to course. be living now. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. For sure. <laughs> well, <laughs> Jody. Jody, thank you so much. This has been a disgusting and fascinating conversation. It's exactly what we wanted. Our listeners want to know what life, if you step in that time machine, what it would really be like back then. And I think so much of what you said, you know, adds this depth and color to, you know, pretty sanitized stories we get in, in the New Testament. But just thinking about like, when Jesus talks about your daily bread, I mean, when you think about like, that's all they were eating was bread. Of course, mm. the, that's the thing that's that needs to be the similar, right. the living water that he references, yeah. you know, bread, the, bread you know, it, and it wine, gives, right? The staples. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and then like you said, these, these purity ideas, but that they weren't actually really cleaning anything. It really was a <laughs> ritual sense. It's important, man. Okay. I'm not going back there, but it, um, it really it really paints an evocative picture. So thank you. And I, and we encourage our listeners to go out. That book is still mm. still for sale um, with the great title that Jody did not give it, but it's still a great title. <laughs> uh, Stone and Dung, Oil and Spit. Um, that was her book from 2011 about Jewish daily life in the first century. But thank you again, Jody. Thank we'll you. have to have you back soon. And uh, thank you to Helen, of course, and to our listeners. And This has been another episode of Biblical Time Machine. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.